Hi, my name is Justin Sincere. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and your fellow trauma nerd. Speaking of trauma nerds, I got a pretty big one. Her name is Irene Lyon. She is, to put it mildly, a nervous system expert. She has a couple of decades working in depth uh, with nervous systems. And one of her modalities that she uses is somatic experiencing. Uh, you've heard me mention that a number of times in the podcast by now. Uh, so that was particularly of interest to me. But uh, she, she went way in depth into a lot of things. So welcome to the Polyvagal Podcast and part one of my chat with Irene Lyon. Correct me if I got this wrong, but did your website emphasize the importance of work? And then I, I looked in, I, yesterday and I couldn't find it anymore, but I thought your your website had something about like, this is not a one-time thing. We have to be, this is not a passive thing. We have to be putting the work in sort of idea. Yeah. It's just like diet and exercise, right? People think it's important that it's like, and I won't, you know, the medical community has taught us that if you have a problem, you go, you get it fixed, you're done. Yeah. And we've did yes. that model and it's totally screwing people because they then feel like their practitioner has wronged them, that they lied to them. They, you know, false marketing, all of it comes. It's like, well, no, this isn't something that can get fixed. And I have a 12 week program. You are not, everything is not going to be done in 12 weeks. You know, it's impossible. And even though I educate people on that, there's a weird blinder that people have. And they want to believe it's only going to take 12 weeks, but it's like you wouldn't start losing weight or becoming better at exercising or eating well. And then at the end of 12, okay, I've done it. Now I'll just go back to every, it just doesn't work that way. And so it's exactly the same with this. And that's something that people are having a struggle to comprehend. That's actually one of, I think it was one of the Q and A or FAQs on the website was someone, or maybe multiple people have asked at 12 weeks, am I done? And you, you barely clearly said no. I've been doing this for 20 years and I still am processing stuff from childhood and I had a good childhood. Right. So it's like, what does it mean? It, yeah. It's just how conditioned and culturalized we are. And it's just, it's where we have to really work on it because we're, you know, humans. Absolutely. Oh no, of course. And I, I know <laughs> people are hearing this and they're going to be super bummed <laughs> because they want to get unstuck. They want to go climb the polyvagal ladder. They want to come out of their stuck defensive state. And they will, Okay. but there are layers and layers and layers and layers and layers within us that we don't even understand. Okay. And there are, you know, there'll be new things that come into our world. You know, someone will die. We'll get into a car accident. We'll, our dog will die. Our, our, you know, stock market will crash. Like all these things that we can't predict. So we get can get to regulation. We can learn regulation when we didn't get it, but that doesn't mean it's the same. Again, again, I go back to diet and exercise. It's like you reach that plateau and you have to keep going. Doesn't mean that you have to do the same level of work, but you have to keep doing something and noticing when things pop up because you have no idea when something might. Some of my most biggest things popped up in the most unexpected places. I found that for, for myself as well, where I had um, what I thought was a moment of being unstuck and really feeling those tingles and all the mm -hmm. stuff that Peter Levine talks about so much. And then I did a presentation mm -hmm. of polyvagal theory and, I, and then all of a sudden my body was like, shut down, shut down, shut down. And I was like, what is going on here? I should be ready to roll. I've done this yep. before, but it was like a new stress. It was a new trigger. It was a new audience. And yep. it really threw me for a loop. I thought yep. I was ready. Yep. And you were. 
<laughs> cognitively. Yes. But this goes back to where I think Kathy King's work was so key. And, you know, I quote her so much because she's taught me so much where your stress physiology thought otherwise. Help us separate the two between, you said cognitively, I was prepared. And I, I, I get yeah. what you're saying, but you let's make sure. Yeah, you know your theory. Yeah. Your right. You have all the stories. You've got all the jokes. You know how to breathe and drink water when you need it and look at your audience and connect. And that's all part of it, definitely. But, and I don't know your history and it's not important, but somewhere along the line, there might have been a situation where you were put on the spot or um, you were ridiculed or who knows what or you did a presentation and you forgot everything and, and your stress physiology, which is unconscious and somatic, purely somatic, it could be something like, let's just say hypothetically, Justin, that let's say you did have a terrible experience presenting something in the past. Seventh grade science class. But there you go. I didn't know and the answer and he kicked me out of class. There you go. <laughs> Twice. So let's just, just, let's just say, so there you go. Perfect. <laughs> And let's say I was told hypothetical, yeah. you had, you were fighting a virus that day, like you had a cold or a common cold and your immune system like was like, oh, I'm fighting this cold and I just got put into a seriously stressful situation in the world of Peter and somatic experiencing that's being overcoupled. And let's just say by some fluke of nature that that day when you were doing that talk as an adult, your body was a little... Mm. you know, struggling immune wise doesn't mean you're sick. It can set off a cascade of that exact moment when you were preparing with good health. And so that's just, that's like one. But so explain to us the overcoupling idea. Yeah. Um, so overcoupling there's, they're called coupling dynamics in the world of somatic experiencing. And there's two kinds. One is overcoupled. One is undercoupled and overcoupling would be like what just occurred to you like that hypothetical it would be um actually this is a great do you watch Grey's Anatomy I do not okay <laughs> sorry <laughs> I'm confessed junkie so, <laughs> I only started watching it in the last few years I'm like this is actually good even though there's drama but there is a great um uh character in the show called Dr. Owen Hunt and he has PTSD from being a medical doctor in the desert in, in Afghanistan and Iraq war. Um, and so he thought that his PTSD and all of his trouble relating and connecting was because of seeing all this bad stuff happen when he was at the war. And, you know, he could never keep love. He could never have relationships. And then finally his sister, so pivotal, she's like, do the work, Owen, get a therapist. He's like, I've done therapy. She's like, not enough. And then she rattles off, I do somatic training, I do this, I do this. And I'm like, whoa, like, so the writers for Grey's Anatomy know it was so good. It was the last season. Nice, yeah. And, um, and then she's like, fine, fine, I'll go see someone. And so he went to the voodoo doctor who did, I mean, that's what he, that's what he called it. Because he wasn't a straight <laughs> therapist. He gotcha. made you like touch your head. And, you know, so he was doing containment um, based therapy while talking about and feeling things and so what they uncovered there's a point to the story was that he can never allow himself to feel good he can never allow joy to happen and so it's so funny that you said you had a seventh grade this is so cool 
his history was that he was in like seventh grade or sixth grade, I don't know, fifth grade, and he won the science fair. Like he won it, he, he, whatever he did, he got the, the, the A gold ribbon. He ran home to tell his mother. He goes into the house and he's about to tell her with that excitement. So sympathetic, you know, energy. His mom looks completely like sullen, like something bad has happened. And she's like, Owen, sit down. I need to tell you something. Your father just died today. I get tingles thinking about it. So he had excitement for this is so good. I just did something so amazing. And then his mom drops the bomb that his father dies, like huge shock. And so what the voodoo therapist uncovered was that he had an overcoupling of I cannot feel joy and be proud of myself because my dad just died. So how dare I feel good about something that I did that day when my father just died yeah. and my mother just lost her, her husband and da, da 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 And so at that moment, the therapist, you know, got him to feel it. And then the grief came out, the sadness, but he stayed contained because of the, you know, it was so great. He was doing this movement. I don't remember what it was. Um, so that would be overcoupling. And we can see that with um, events like that, but we can also have overcoupling. Where there's like sympathetic yeah, there's like a sympathetic charge with maybe another sympathetic charge or a deep shutdown charge. It is not cut and dry. And you can have dynamics in the system where there's overcoupling and undercoupling happening at the same time. Okay. So another example. Um, so uh, let's just say I'll talk, talk that's not the nicest to listen to, but let's just say someone was sexually assaulted or physically assaulted. So they were, you know, there was touch involved to their body. It was scary, bad. You know, that's bad. Um, overcoupling would mean all touch is bad. Like, don't touch me. I can't be touched. It's impossible. Even if you look, I can't. Whereas under is like, you can touch whatever you want. And that's where we see people who had severe abuse will get into risky situations. They're and this is not a technical word, but their pieces of their system yeah. are all over the place, right? Like in a proper, I'll use a metaphor because this is key, in a, like in a house that's organized, you have all the cutlery in the kitchen, have your shampoo in the shower, and you would have your clothes in your drawers and your books and your bookcases. That would be like organized coupling dynamics. Okay. Undercoupled, you would have the cutlery in the fireplace. You would have your books in your shower. And all the blankets are out on the deck. Overcoupled, everything is in the fireplace. Overcoupling in physiology, we often see a lot of tension, a lot of archetypical like, like chest up flare, like very much tension, no flow in the body. It's like you're trying to hold it all together and in. Whereas undercoupling shows up in the physiology is like limp and loose and just like there's no tone. And when we think of um, the polyvagal theory and tone of the body, and this is not an exactitude, but when someone has more that low level dorsal shutdown, they're in more of a free state hypotonic, they will be often more undercoupled. Okay. And that comes with low energy, low metabolism flaccid muscles, just no, ooh. and so we need healthy, we need both. 
to me, what I'm hearing you say is that when you're overcoupled, that your response is like heightened. And then if you're undercoupled, it's more of like your your cues of danger, you're picking up on danger might be decreased? Almost. It's hard to, to transfer those over to neuroception, which is our perception of danger. Because someone can be highly undercoupled, but super hypervigilant to their environment. So it's more a physiological state that's almost separate from the physiological state of safe, not safe, right? So, and this is where this work is a little trickier because, you know, as I said a little moment ago, um, it's artwork and you need to know your paints and the colors and the palettes and the brushes. And then every single person, because of our human history, we're so complex, right? Absolutely. I mean, I have a video on my YouTube channel. Um, I kind of make fun of us as humans because I like to do that sometimes because we need to have humor. But if you go, you know, if you go into the wild or if you go just down to the beach where I live here, and there's all these geese. Every year we watch them hatch goslings like baby geese. Or, um, you know, if you have an animal in the wild, they give birth to their babies there's no difference in how those animals here on North American soil versus Australia care for their offspring. Mm -hmm. It's the same. It's written in their DNA. Humans aren't like that. We have that intuition. We have that innate impulse, that innate instinct to care for our young and we we should know what to do and it is there in our dna but because of culture religion domestication of plants and animals ten thousand years ago all the crap that we deal with we have completely skewed away from that natural instinct and so that's why it's so complex yeah yeah it's It's not simple Right. And I think when I when I talk about it on the podcast and whatnot, I talk about it in pretty I call it cartoony terms where mm-hmm. you're either in your safe and social state or you're sympathetic or yeah. you're shut down dorsal. And it's yeah. of course it's not that black and white. That's it's it's not like that. that. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. All right. I don't know how we got there, but basically <laughs> this okay. is not a one time thing. You gotta yeah. keep working at it. You gotta keep working on it. You know, it's it's I always say this to my students and I'm saying this more often is um, this is long-term, it's lifestyle, and we've treated it like it's a medical condition that we have to fix. And if we can just flip that 180 degrees, and here's what's interesting. I was in the fitness industry and nutrition in my 20s and early 30s. Like My background is in exercise sci, applied human nutrition. I did a research study with exercise, and I left that industry because the reason why people weren't eating well and exercising was because of our cultural messes around activity and all the food rules we've created for ourselves and rewards with food and, and, and not being um, functional every day. So it hurts to move because we're just not out on the plains roaming the way we used like all of that. And so I, I left that industry because I'm like, this is more than a, behavioral situation everyone knows they have to eat well everyone knows they how to eat well actually it's pretty simple everyone knows i should probably move every day you know it's like you know probably shouldn't smoke a pack of cigarettes a day like we just know these things but the reason we don't implement them 
it's not for lack of want or even knowing how, it's those underlying pieces that stop us for whatever reason. And so for me, the nervous system work and working at this level of the physiology and learning about the physiology is so critical for humans. It's not critical for those animals in the wild. They have it. Yeah, they're, they're very in touch. They have to be to survive. They right? have survival and they don't have a higher cortex like there's a reason why we are we've created all this technology i mean it's crazy what really if we start to think about it what humans have created is absolutely insane and it's so true. it's true i still marvel when i fly i just don't understand how it happens yeah it's like what there are a more than 500 plane, 200 people on this plane and we're flying across <laughs> an ocean and we have food and we're breathing oxygen it boggles my mind. And so when we look at how incredible our inventions are, that shows us how complex our higher brain can create situations that don't allow us to be naturally animalistic humans. But then we can't be savages, right? We can't go around, I mean, killing people. And yet there are people that do that. And it's because they're stuck in that primitive state. That's what really, and I don't know if you have any more insight on, on that, but like that really fascinates me that how someone can go to this sort of sociopathic killer sort of, it's not a mindset thing. It's a, Oh God, no. Right. So how does someone get so far off the path of their DNA? Yeah. Do you know the story of, um, sorry, I cut you off. What were you saying? No, that was basically it. It's like, I don't understand that. And. I haven't worked with someone who's fits the bill of that. Um, so, it, but I find that really intriguing and I find my, a big mental block there of like going from point A to point Z, I guess. Oh, I can talk to that. So for those, you know, listening who want to geek out on that, the um, Dr. Bruce Perry, have you come across his work? So he wrote um, Born for Love, which is a great book. That's one of his more recent books. And the other one is um, The Boy Who Was Raised by a Dog. I might be getting that wrong. Um, and so he is a psychologist, psychiatrist who deals with really insane cases and often kids. So when kids, you know, do something horrible and it makes no sense, it's like, what happened? Like he had good upbringing, da, 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 da. why did he do this thing? And um, I have two videos actually on my YouTube channel. One I call the story of Ryan, Ryan, so people can look that up. One is the story of Teddy. The one that's interesting is the story of Teddy. That's not his story. I pieced together that story. Teddy is Theodore Kaczynski. So for those listening who are not American or North American, he is the Unabomber. And he was put into jail because he sent um, bombs in letters like boxes. Yeah. There's actually a great Netflix show called Manhunt where the forensic, get what it's called, a new form of forensic science was developed because of finding him. So they studied how he wrote, mm. the references he made in his manifesto, and they found him eventually. But what's so fascinating about him is on that Netflix show, they only show him as a child doing bad things things hurting people in science class you know making little bombs in science class and it just didn't make sense he was highly intelligent 
very intelligent. He actually spoke of things that were 100% accurate around the human condition. Like things that I would think about, you know, like why am I stopped at the stoplight when there are no cars here? Why can't I just go through? Like that kind of conditioning, it makes sense. So what's interesting is if you go into some of Peter's works, um, he has a book called, it's written, co-written with Maggie Klein, and it's about uh, children. It's about healing, uh, healing trauma through a child's eyes. In that uh, book, he talks about interviewing Theodore Kaczynski's mother. And so what occurred... He, he did that? Yes, Peter interviewed Theodore Kaczynski's mom. I think her name was Wilma or Velma. And so she told Peter... Yeah, well, what occurred when little Teddy was, I think he was maybe six months old, I might be getting my dates off, but he was a baby. He was an infant. He broke out in a horrific rash, head to toe. And I don't know what year would have this, this would have been like the 1950s, maybe? No, it would have been late 40s. He was taken to the hospital. I mean, imagine hospitals back then. He was put in a room, strapped down on a table for six days, Justin. Wow. And probably given cortisone, you know, to calm the rash down. But he was strapped down. I mean, I almost want to cry thinking about that. Because if we had that happen to us, we would go mental. And he was six months years old? He was like six months old. And so they did that to him. Obviously, the rash recovered. But when he got home, the mom, his mom said when he came home, he was never the same. The perky little fun boy, he, was, he went into dorsal shutdown. It is actually amazing he didn't die because a child, you know, he probably got just enough food, just enough nutrition to survive. And he probably had a strong will, but he went into dorsal shutdown. And so here's this little baby that was just essentially abused by the medical system to treat a condition. He is now in dorsal shutdown. She has no clue what that means other than he was never the same. So he is stuck in this loop of wanting desperately to kill people because we've seen this with people who have had medical trauma where they've been trapped down. When you start to work with their physiology and get them to express the stored trauma, they want to fight. They want to hit. They want, they want to, it's more than just running and shaking. Right. You know, kids that were poked and prodded with needles. It's like, they want to do that to the person doing it to them. I've worked with people, kids who have had, you know, surgeries where they want to kill the doctor and everyone's like, Oh, you can't do that. But that it's not about actually doing it. It's about helping them move the energy out. And so, you know, this poor kid, you know, when, you know, Theodore, no clue what's going on. All he knows is he wants to hurt things and prove a point. He was wronged by society. And then he spends his whole life trying to prove to society what's wrong with it. It's kind of amazing. The other interesting thing is that he was very smart. I can't remember what university he went to. I think it was Harvard. He was recruited, I'm kind of giving the Netflix show away, but he was recruited by the researchers back in the day when the CIA were testing interrogation strategies. And so because he was kind of a loner and a recluse, because of his no facial affect, which is what we know with the polyvagal theory, you need facial affect to find people right? He had no one. And so he befriended or this professor befriended him. They played chess every day. He felt connected to this professor. And then one day the professor's like, Theodore, we want to try, are you interested in trying something? 
requires sitting in this chair. We're going to have to strap you down. This is no like kidding. And we're going to do these things. I can't even remember anymore, Justin, but it's fascinating because they subjected him to, I think, shock therapy. I can't remember what it was. But they were seeing how far they could go before breaking him. And then what occurred is he realized that the guy was doing it not because he wanted to be friends with him. He was looking to experiment. Anyway, and then there's the next trauma. And, um, and isn't it interesting that now he's trapped in solitary confinement? Because he is. He's in solitary confinement. So it's like he was in solitary oh, confinement yeah, you're right. as a baby. Yeah. And this is how, you know, this is a grand example. So this is not common. It's not common. But it's an example for all of us about how these little things can happen to us when we're little. Maybe we were strapped down. I was strapped down for tonsillectomy when I was young. I was not treated well. I still remember it. All these little things that we keep that we don't think are important because they were back there and how they influence how we interact with things that have nothing to do with medical procedures. Right. It's just how our physiology has been taught to survive. And so you ask the question, how do people become psychopaths? That's how they become psychopaths. When I believe fully and most of my colleagues would agree with this, I'm pretty sure all of them will because you look at the research. No one is born. No one is born wanting to hurt anybody. It is what occurs to us through our life, through what doesn't happen. And some of the worst cases that I've read about where people have, um, harmed others the story of ryan that i mentioned this kid was affluent good home um and the mother was clueless about how to care for a baby and this poor kid had 18 nannies in a matter of three years and so he never developed any empathy Mm -hmm. whenever he developed a connection stopped and so as an infant he started to realize well i can't this is very polyvagal right i can't connect and feel safe with someone because the moment I do that, it's taken away. So I'm just going to go into shutdown. And then he did some horrific things as a teenager that made no sense. But they do. When you went back and Bruce talked about it in Born, he's like, he knew, he's like, it all went sideways when I asked the mother um, how many, you know, to ask the mother about the nanny. Because of course he might've spent, oh, well, maybe something was wrong with the nanny. And it had nothing to do with being nanny. It was the fact that he had 18 nannies. Yeah. <laughs> so again, that shows how, you know, that case of that mother, again, she didn't know um, any different. There was no intuition. There was no, there was no understanding of what humans need, probably because she didn't have it. As well. So it's like this interesting train. Of- it's, it's extremely interesting. Well, I want to pick up with, um, you mentioned with with killers in particular, sociopaths. No one's born that way. And I fully agree with you. I, I have, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. But people are convinced they are born depressed or have an anxiety disorder or they are convinced I am, I, am, I, am, I am bipolar or I was born bipolar, whatever that means for that person. Mm-hmm. Would you extend, and I know I would, but would you extend that idea to these day-to-day Absolute. diagnoses? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, like if we look at something like depression or anxiety disorders, it it follows a long line. 
because we know now that intergenerational trauma is real. They showed this through studies with Holocaust survivors who had children, grandchildren born in safety, and they have higher levels of cortisol than their counterparts because that trauma was never healed properly. But, but how was that passed on? This is a whole separate topic, but how was that? Oh, yeah. It's connected though, but how was that passed on? Are you saying on a DNA level, a cellular level, or yeah. an environmental level? Like they're passing on these ways I of being? Speak, or the... Yeah, I, I don't know what, the, I don't really look at research papers anymore, but I know if we go with the polyvagal situation, um, when we're born, we do not have the capacity to self-regulate right, fully. Right. And so, you know, we're born, baby comes out, their experience of the world is is 100% in relationship to their environment. And so if mom or grandma who looked after baby has whatever it might be, a slight tendency to be more kind of shut down or a slight tendency to be, you know, you pick up the baby and even though you're loving it, because I have no doubt that these people love their kids. Have you ever gone to a, a practitioner or a dentist and they touch you and you can feel a little bit of nervousness in their yes, hands totally. and it feels awful. So, and, and they're not aware of it. It's the vibration in their body. Even their tone of voice. Yeah. Lacking prosody and whatnot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's either, you know, totally like this and this is how we talk or it's so frantic and it's just, I can't, and oh yeah, of course we should do that. Oh, and how about, the, and, you yeah. know, and it just, da, 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 like, and I made it a little. I made that a bit more extreme. But if you have a caregiver, no, it's pretty accurate though. Who has that? And the moment again, there are for everyone listening. There are a gazillion different scenarios, but I'll give one. You know, so just let's say baby has caregiver. Caregiver, of course, has their own stuff that let's just assume they haven't dealt with because most generations before us haven't. I'm being very general here. You and I, I'm 43, I don't know how old you are, but most of our parents didn't do these conversations. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We're in a totally different situation. So we're, we will assume that that child had someone who wasn't fully regulated. So let's just say that baby whimpers, is hungry, is cold. And let's say that the person picks them up. But the person doesn't know what to do with that because they're not connected to their own body, which by default means that you can't connect to theirs. And when that occurs, I mean, that's a one moment thing. If you think about that over three bloody years, that is constantly, I like to use the example of, um, (laughs) Layers of pastry, <laughs> like those really thin layers of pastry, those phyllo phyllo sheets, that's one sheet. You might not see it, but it's a sheet. And then baby is hot, maybe. And the mother is not attuned to the fact that they just walked into the grocery store. It's winter, the heat is on, and they're still bundled up. Baby's crying. There's no connection to, oh, gosh. She must be hot. Let's take off the booties and all the cute little clothing so that she can breathe and regulate, right? The the baby can't say, mommy, I'm hot. Take off my booties, right? So there's another layer. 
um, the way that we um, put kids onto feeding schedules so young, infants onto feeding schedules, the way we let them cry themselves to sleep, this idea that thankfully is starting to go out the window that you have to, you can't spoil a baby. You know, you've got to treat, teach them how to, how to toughen up and deal with those tears. They are an immature animal. And so when we're that young, when we're like an infant, the, the, um, the myelination of that, you know, to put some polyvagal talk in here, the myelination of that ventral vagal nerve, it is just enough. It's not unmyelated. There's just enough myelation um, so that you can make faces like a newborn baby can tell a little bit. Like they can, they can accept your co-regulation. They can accept your cues of safety, right? Yeah. Granted you're giving them. And so it's there. And so the moment you start to make that connection, it strengthens that myelination. So to go back to this idea of how do things get passed, it's, it's like, it's very epigenetic, which is the term for, you know, our genetics shift based on our environmental situations. And, you know, Dr. Porges, who, who wrote the kind of magnum opus on the polyvagal theory, he really was like, the environment is, I like to say, king and queen, like it's both. And all these little nuances of how we're touched, how we're spoken to, how we're not spoken to, how we're not fed when we're hungry, or how we're maybe forced to eat when we're not hungry, all these things they influence our sense of safety. They influence how our physiology works. And so someone, you know, has that more tense, anxious, high kind of survival, fight, flighty, peppery quality that will teach that baby how to be like that. Because if baby isn't like that, mama doesn't know what to do with it. They might not get their needs met, right? And they won't get their needs met. And so there, and then some people will often say, oh, well, you know, my baby never cried. It's like, that's not good either because that shows that that little one, and by, by never cried, I mean like there was no whimpering for anything, right? That, that little one learns so early on, no one's home. So I'm just going to shut down because that is survival for me. And that's where that dorsal shutdown comes in. So we're super intelligent when it comes to how we manage and regulate our physiology, but the way that we regulate our physiology is often detrimental for long-term physiological and mental health. Does that make sense? And so we've seen that someone can have um, that kind of misattunement, that kind of lack of safety, and it can breed it could breed more mental disorders, but it can also breed, which is actually more common, more physiological disorders. You know, I I don't know the stats, but my guess is there are more people suffering from chronic illness than true, you know, I, I hate to label that, but mental illness. And we see that in all the organizations that are trying to cure MS and cancer and heart disease and, and Alzheimer's and, um, ALS and Crohn's and fibromyalgia and all these things that Peter Levine has actually been very pivotal at showing the the strong link between those chronic illnesses and the um, physiology being dysregulated. And then Porges's work just backs that up so well. And he's like, yeah, if we are having to fight for our lives physiologically, 
we're going to go into an immobilization that is fear-based due to survival. And then we get into big problems because our system just can't tick at that level, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Bring us back to the those you know, depression and anxiety, I'm born this way sort of thing. You just laid out as a baby mm-hmm. the, the misattunement, the lack of co-regulation. Um, how does that equal mental health disorder? How does that equal depression or anxiety? Sure. Well, depression is an interesting one because we think of it as mental. But if you really... I'm just using the common language. I <laughs> know you are. But if you, you know, it's to be depressed, right? You are suppressed. Your life force energy is like the size of a pea, if that. And so if we look at that specific topic, and again, this is like a whole other five hours, <laughs> but... To put it into a few minutes, when we're born, um, and I've done some other videos on this, we, um, we start to feel our healthy aggression come up. So this life force spark that realizes I am a being, holy cow, I can pull on mother's hair, you know, I can pound my fists. I can scratch. There's energy in my body. What the heck is this? Right? If you think about it, babies are so clueless and yet they're so smart because they're just somatic entities that are just expressing, you know, they pass gas, they burp, they don't say, excuse me, it just happens, right? How we are dealt with when that happens then sets the turn for, you know, our system feeling bad about its biological functions, but that's another story. So this this aggression, this healthy aggression starts to come out. Um, and if the parent or the caregiver is not able to see what that is and celebrate it, it gets shut down. Don't do that. That hurts. Stop it. Baby gets put down in the crib. You little monster. How dare you hurt me? The baby doesn't know what it's doing. Right, right, right right? It's just feeling its body. It's getting it sympathetic. That's the fight flight that's starting to mobilize. And so, um, it's funny cause I have a friend who has a newborn. He's, well, she's not newborn anymore. He's like 13 months, but she, he was starting to, to hit and bite and that when he was just being carried. And so she Googled what to do if your baby is biting and Google said, bite the baby back. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) Was that a serious answer or like a a serious sort of joke? Yeah, she found some site that's like, no way. You want to tell them that that's not right. And, and, oh, a website actually. I don't know if it was a website. I mean, she's a trusting, she's a trusted person. So she definitely saw that. And so I did a video on this and people, you know, people are like, well, my kids turned out just fine. And I told them that that wasn't right. Or my doctor said, yeah, to tap them so that they get distracted. But that is all taking them out of their physical experience. Yeah. And so I said to her, I said, well, try this next time. The next time he does that, grab his little cute hands, right? And not grab, but just touch them and be like, holy cow, that was a lot of energy. You know, and then play a game with him to get that energy out as opposed to bad boy, don't hurt. Because they're not trying to hurt They're just trying to express who they are and their life force energy. So to go back to the question of depression, 
let's just say hypothetically that that is the way that that child is brought up, which so many are. And it keeps happening because the moment that's, oh, and by the way, that friend, he never did it again. He never hit her again. He never bit because that energy got released. He was matched. He was attuned to. That's attunement. And so let's just say that baby that isn't attuned to then becomes a toddler. And he's like, I want that toy, my toy, you know, and then maybe the toy is something that he can't have. And the parents like, you don't want that toy, you know, or no, like rather than how can we deal with this uncomfortable situation? You can't have that toy. I know you want that toy and yo, you can't have it. But the moment we, we, we manipulate, it's like, you don't really want that. Or no, you don't want that candy at the checkout oil, you know, like, Oh, well, if you wait and be a good girl until we come home, you, you know, then we'll give you something else. So it's all these tactics to not be with what is happening in the moment. And some people will say, well, easier said than done. And actually, if you start with it early, it is easier said than done because you're not trying to manipulate this little human animal that just wants something, right? Doesn't mean they're going to get it. You might have to put them into an uncomfortable situation. This is how little ones grow capacity, not babies. This is now like the five-year-old that wants the thing. They might need to feel that, mm, like, I want that. And it's like, I'm sorry, but you can't have it, sweetie. Like, let's, like, let's go, you know, come, like, just sit with me yeah. as opposed to we'll go to your room, you know, stop being like that. And so then you get sent to the room, solitarily confinement, and then you're basically just like sullen, same with timeouts, go sit on the stairs. I've been around kiddos who have had that happen to them and those poor children, they feel isolation, they're disconnected from and so the moment at that young age, they're disconnected from, they have to quickly figure out, am I going to keep being a menace and trying to exert my life force energy, or am I just going to go introvert? Am I just going to be quiet? I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to be like this. I'm going to read my book, you know, but it's, it, it's like, they have to do that to survive in that relationship, that familiar, familial environment. And so they, their exuberance, their sense of self, their true sense of self becomes a false sense of self. So they go to the, so now I'm like totally speeding up. They go to the dinner table. They're seven. They know that they can't show their life force energy. They can't sing a song because it's time to eat. You know, you got to sit still and there's, there's boundaries here. Like, you know, it isn't about running around being a menace, but it's like, give us, you know, like, yeah, let's sing a song. And okay, now it's time to eat. And yeah, you've got to sit when you eat. You don't want to be walking around choking on your food. Like all those things still have to happen. But there's this fine balance between realizing that these kiddos are really just looking for expression and knowing that their expression is real. And so then if that doesn't happen, they will depress everything. And when you depress one thing, you depress the entire physiology. Because this isn't just cognitive. This starts with that, you know, if you go back to the baby that's pulling, that's, that's life force energy, that's somatic energy. When Peter lectures and does classes on depression, the title of his masterclass 
is, it used to be this, I think it's about the same, life force aggression, depression, I'm getting, I'm getting it wrong, but it's like life force aggression and depression. Because basically to heal and come out of what we would consider true biological depression, he calls it anaclytic depression, you have to rev the system up again. You have to get it feeling comfortable with feeling energy. And then with that, if someone was shamed for being exuberant and energetic, there'll be a whole ton of shame that comes with it. Part of my language, right? There'll be gotcha. shame. There'll be like, I can't show who I am because when I did, I was slapped metaphorically, literally. And so then you have this dynamic of dealing with not only the physiology that's biologically depressed, which we know creates cognitive depression, because when we are living in that survival freeze, that survival shutdown, our cognitive brain is not sharp, right? It's, it's, it's completely in like low gear. Absolutely. So you've, you've got to deal with the biological milieu, but then you have to deal, not deal, that's not the best word. You have to work with the the word is escaping me, the interjects, that's the word, the interjects in our mind, things like, I can't be energetic, I can't show my crazy side, I can't be smart, I can't do these things, like, or, like or whenever, that keep you... it's, it's a belief, it's yeah. something that interjects with, with gotcha. we don't even realize it, like, I will never do this because of that, and so we got to deal with that, and that's a bit more thought-based, but if you track it, and you trace it over time with someone, you know, if you're working with them, they can, you will eventually, if you're committed to the work, you will find it somewhere in the physiology, or you'll find it in a declarative memory of when um, you brought home, you know, uh, a flower for your mother and it was a dandelion weed, right? And it's like, that should be really cool. But, you know, it's like, I can guarantee you there'll be some people that are like, well, that's just a weed, darling. That's not a real flower. Like that's boom. That's, that's another, you know, hit in the wrong direction. And so you got to deal with those interjects and then, the part that's interesting when it comes to depression and life force energy is this shame piece, this toxic shame, because again, I mean, this is like the worst case scenario, but you have a child who's brought up in that situation where they're told they're nothing. They can't express. They'll never be good at anything. And that's just verbal abuse. Like that's not even physical, right? I've actually found Justin, I don't know if you found this working um, with folks who have had, more specific physical traumas and sexual traumas. I, and I don't want to make one trauma worse or better than no, the other, but that is sometimes a little more tangible to work with than someone who is just lightly gaslit or emotionally used, right? It's, it seems to me like it comes down to the level of attachment and actual safe relationships. And if, they, if I've worked with someone who has some, something of that, the sky's the limit. Yeah. If I don't have that, it's it's way more difficult. It's different. It's very different because, you know, you're dealing with, um, and I'll get back to the shame piece. When, if we go back again, polyvagal theory, we want the wires of self-regulation to come together. Like we, we want to have an expression. We want someone to meet us. 
ah, I'm better. Maybe we're hungry. Oh, okay, now I'm fed. Oh, I've got a boo-boo on my thing. Okay, I'm helping. Someone's teaching me how to calm down, right? By looking at me, being with me, not sending me to my room to figure it out on my own at age three. And so when we have those wires at the beginning, we really do have a robust nervous system. So if we have a shock trauma or we have a sexual assault or we are, you know, in a natural disaster, we actually bounce back a lot faster because that wiring was there. But many people that have this more, um, the situation where there wasn't free expression and there wasn't this ability to be ourselves and we weren't attuned to, my wires are dangling. They're looking to connect, but they never have. And so um, when we think of um, things like toxic shame, because there's a difference between toxic and healthy, another topic. But but you can't just leave it at that, though. You have to. Yeah. (laughs) You have to. You can't. (laughs) I will. I will. Okay. So we think about someone who's been toxically (laughs) shamed. What occurs, and I'm stealing from Peter his words because this is how he expresses it. You have a child that's ridiculed, told they're no good, they're not, you know, how dare you, you know, you don't know anything that all that crap that people say to their kids. The the kid really starts to think that they're what we he calls bad meat. That's metaphoric. Bad meat, rotten. How many you're such a rotten child. That's common, right? And so that instills a sense of visceral disgust in the person. I am terrible. Oh my God. Like I really must be horrible. I must be to bad meat. And so when we want to, so I'm kind of reverse engineering. So depression, shame, toxic shame, bad meat, disgust to work at the deepest levels of working with depression and, and biological shutdown. If that were the case, again, that's very specific to that kind of upbringing. You got to work with the disgust the sense of disgust of self. And that's where self-harm comes in. That's where we get into addictive behaviors to come away from that feeling of disgust. Like we just don't want to feel it because it's pretty gross. But it's not something I, you know, you, first session, okay, let's work with your sense of disgust. Like, whoa, what, what are you talking right, about? Right. There has to be a building of capacity, understanding everything. Like when I work with my people, they get what we are talking about. Like I educate them at this level and more because if they don't understand the timeline of how all this occurred to put them at age 50 where they have not only depression but Crohn's disease let's say they need to understand why that happened it isn't your fault like it's not a genetic defect it is a long standing environmental situation brought on by crappy circumstances that were never addressed. Are you saying that the why of it can help reduce the disgust? Yes. Doesn't mean you won't feel it. Right, right, right. It's like saying to someone when you start working with them at this biological level, like, okay, so you have been in shutdown and you're in this kind of depressed biological state. Coming out of that, unfreezing the system is going to mean you've just, I've got my glass of water here. So it's like, you've just packed in all these feelings of fear 
and disgust and terror and horror, all the bad stuff that is so intense for a little one to feel and doesn't have the capacity to feel because they don't have the attunement to know how to deal with it and to self-regulate. When we start to work on this as adults, all this stuff is going to start to bubble up and we're going to feel stuff that ain't that nice. This is why it's important for me at least to really educate my students because I don't want them feeling something that feels like death or something like this is not what I signed up for and be like, I'm out of here. Because if they start to actually feel things that are a little uncomfortable, that's actually a good sign. Of course, we need to make sure that they have the capacity to stay with that. And that's why we teach them education and all these skills. So yeah, so disgust is really, and Peter talks about disgust as I, th I think it's sort of like an entryway or a portal to work with the shame. shame. Yes. Is that, is that correct? He calls it the gateway emotion. Yeah, that, that, thank you. There we go. <laughs> so disgust, even though it's very difficult to live with, mm -hmm. it's a signal that there may be the next step ready to happen. Yeah. Well, is that a good way to put it? It, it yeah. And it comes, it, it doesn't, you know, disgust is a, it's a, so first of all, disgust is one of the primal animal emotions. We forget about it, right? There's fear, happiness, um, <laughs> I'm going to forget all of the other ones, <laughs> disgust, um, uh, surprise, um, sadness. Those are them. And I'll give an example. Like, you know, when something's gone off in your garbage because you open it up to put something in it, Ugh, like bad chicken, you know, like, oh, forgot there was a chicken in there and that's what's going off. That That's like visceral, ugh, like it's gross. And so what people often feel is sometimes they will start to become embodied because you have to understand, I'll make the loop, when we have got that more biological depressed physiology, we're disconnected from our body. It might be hypersensitive or it might be hyposensitive. Usually, for the most part, it's more hypo. There's this numbness. I can't feel anything. And so when we start to do practices to actually get into the containers and compartments of our physiology and muscles and diaphragms and movement, a lot of people will say, this feels gross. It feels gross to touch my skeleton. I don't like it. And it's like, okay, well, see what that's like and maybe, you know, stop touching that. But can you still feel that yuckiness while staying connected? And again, that's a very simple example. But when we've been disconnected to reinvigorate um, the sense of self physiologically and, and somatically, when there's that sense of like grossness, even some people will dry heave, like as if they're trying to vomit something up. Um, that to me is a sign that something is waking up in the lingo of se somatic experiencing that would mean that those coupling dynamics we talked about at the very beginning of our chat are becoming finally coupled back together properly but if we're not teaching people that yeah you might feel like you want to puke sometimes when you do these embodiment exercises they might think something's wrong Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's and so we need about. to be, yeah, we need to be like, no, I know it's uncomfortable and we want to make sure that we can mitigate 
your system going into more activation or more shutdown, right? So we want to be able to, I say with my students, ride the tsunami. And you're not going to ride a tsunami on a surfboard until you know how to be in water or how to stand up on that paddleboard or do a little wave first. We don't want to get into the big tsunami because the there will titration be titration process. That's the titration. You got it. You know, little tiny bits um, so that the system grows up that capacity, just like the pastry layers, so that eventually you actually like, okay, I can do this. I can ride that huge sense of emotion, that sense of disgust, and I've got this. And then that's where sense of agency comes back in, sense of empowerment. Like I just dealt with a really hard piece of something that would have totally put me off for weeks, two years ago. That's cool. And that's when that life force energy can come back in. It's that sense of I am, I can. Uh, aggression, which again is so strange because it's like, oh, aggression's bad, but healthy aggression is good. And you know that. Right. The term um, aggression uh, uh, is Latin. It's agredi. And it means to seize the day, to move forward, to take back, to push through. It doesn't necessarily mean to be violent or to hit. Um, it's very much that energy, that spark, that motivation. life. Motivation. It's totally. It's like motivation, breaking through resistance. Like, yeah, I don't feel like doing this, but God, I got to do this. Right? And that's where folks who fall into that category of more depressive states they can't get out of bed. They can't mobilize their sympathetic energy to get going because we need the sympathetic energy. But it's energy. just not there. It's just not there. It's like if we think about, you know, again, the main neural circuits of our nervous system, we've got the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, and then the parasympathetic has all the different branches. We need that sympathetic energy to wake up in the morning, to, you know, do our laundry, to out for a walk to do things. And so it's not bad. It's essential because a lot of people think the fight flight energy is all bad. It's like, no, we need no, that. No, no, yeah. Well, we need that when we need that. What's, what's the, uh, what's the good shame? Ah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I had to cut it off right there. I'm sure you're upset, but that really was the halfway point. Check out the description down below. There's lots of links to her free and really, really good uh, pieces of content to help you get unstuck and heal from problems. And if you absolutely must have even more Polybagel podcast content, go to justinlmft.com slash members. And for five bucks a month, you can get even more audio content with a wide range of topics. And we're adding to that uh, weekly. So there's always stuff being added to that every single week. Thank you again for checking out part one. Please come back for part two. It's worth it.